Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Stranger Than Adventure Fiction, an in-depth history documentary podcast series. I am your host, Cosimo Greco, story scribbler, forest hobo, and airway rambler. On this show, we focus on real-life adventure tales from all over the world and from both long ago and not so long ago. By this crackling fire, we hear the strange true tales of intrepid man-hunter-hunters, cross-dressing jewel thieves, gun-toting literature critics and mad lad helicopter pilots, to name a few. In this episode, we shall turn our attention to the Americas, more specifically the United States, and rewind our clocks to the middle of the 19th century when she was in the throes of a bloody civil war. In the midst of the gun smoke among the pine trees of the many battles fought during that war, we find a man who was no stranger to neither adventure nor fiction, and whose own life was indeed stranger than the latter. It is, I assure you, a remarkable tale of a hard life lived to its fullest, and we will find that said life's ending is still mired in mystery. So please, if you would, light up the fireplace, crack open some expensive spirits, and come with us on an adventure stranger than fiction. mostly false of events unimportant which are brought about by rulers mostly knaves and soldiers mostly fools out of doors noun that part of one's environment upon which no government has been able to collect taxes chiefly useful to inspire poets Both these definitions are found in the Devil's Dictionary, also known under the name the Cynic's Word Book. Today, those words are certain to cause offence, as they were sure to do over a century ago, and as was the intention of their author at the time, Ambrose Gwyneth Bierce. But they were written from the perspective of someone who had had his fair share of experience of soldiering, tax collecting, poetry scribbling, and the outdoors and who had, in some ways, helped shape history himself. To kick off the inevitable background story to this walking enigma, I shall start by mentioning that Ambrose Beers was born on the 24th of June in 1842 in a log cabin in Ohio, most certainly a very American way of delivery fit for the period. He also had the dubious pleasure of being entirely of English ancestry and having forefathers who all emigrated west in the Great Puritan Migration during the 1600s. At the age of 15, Ambrose, who was never close to his Puritan parents, left the homestead and joined the company of fellows such as Benjamin Franklin, Walt Whitman and Mark Twain in becoming a printer's apprentice. Like many a literary chap before him, the martial life soon called, though, offering experiences and the thrills which he so yearned to add to his belt and then to paper. Ambrose therefore enrolled at the Kentucky Military Institute as a cadet two years later, most likely with a little encouragement from his uncle, a former soldier himself. His path to become an officer was set and the future looked bright. Unfortunately, 
the brightness on the horizon was the tinder of rebellion, which had already started to crackle at this point. At the start of the internal conflict, which would become known as the American Civil War, the state of Kentucky found itself on the border between the Union and the rebellious Confederacy. As the birthplace of both Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis, it held both personal and strategic value to the two leaders. Its inhabitants, like in many other states, held differing views, tearing lines across societies and families in the run-up to the conflict. Consequently, the state of Kentucky desperately announced itself as neutral, but would shortly find itself host to both northern and southern forces and many of their countless skirmishes and battles. And her brothers and sisters would find themselves staring at each other down the barrel of a gun. Sometime before Kentucky tore itself to pieces, however, a cadet, unclear of which political leaning, burned down the Kentucky Military Institute, and Ambrose found himself without a home and without a purpose. The young vagrant adventurer was not to wander aimlessly for long, though, as he was soon sucked into the whirlwind of war, though not as a gallant officer. For those of you who do not hail from the US of A, or are keen students of this particular part of history, I shall linger on this calamitous set as it composes a large part of this story. At the end of 1860, the differences in opinion regarding slavery, states' rights, and the future of the United States of America was coming to a crescendo. These irreconcilable differences tore through the marriage of the Union, and South Carolina finally voted to secede on the 20th of December of that year. Things quickly turned from bad to worse, and Southern House representatives and senators began resigning their seats in scores. As is often the case in civil wars, United States garrisons surrendered to themselves and then joined up under the new Confederacy banner. In March 1861, Republican candidate Abraham Lincoln was elected to the presidency. He refused to recognize any legitimacy of the Confederacy and chose to negotiate directly with the governors of the secessionist states instead. This was not appreciated, and neither was Lincoln's attempts to keep control of key forts in those secessionist states. The fuse was finally lit on April 12, 1861, when Confederate forces attacked Fort Sumter in South Carolina, kicking off the United States' bloodiest conflict, with approximately 750,000 soldiers lost, during the four-year-long family feud. At the start of this quagmire, Ambrose enlisted as a private in the Union Army's 9th Indiana Volunteer Infantry Regiment, which was organized on the 22nd of April, 1861, for service in Indianapolis, a mere 10 days after Fort Sumter was attacked. Initially, it was to serve for three months, but was later reorganized for three more years of service later that August. It was to see many a bloody battle in the war, and Ambrose would find himself in the middle of many of them. The first land action of the war took place in early June at Philippine, in what was then Virginia and is now West Virginia. And Ambrose found himself right there, taking part in a two-pronged infantry attack on unprepared Confederate infantry and cavalry forces. The dawn attack was set off early, as a Mrs. Humphreys, a Confederate sympathizer, saw the approaching Union infantrymen and sent her son on horseback to warn the sleeping rebels. Her son did not get very far, though, before being apprehended by Northern soldiers. In fact, he was still within vision from his mother and she proceeded to fire a revolver at his captors, which sounded the alarm and prematurely initiated the battle, though this proved meaningless to the Confederates, who lost this initial fight. But for Ambrose, it was a rather uneventful Union victory, and he wrote in reference to it that they had shot off a Confederate leg, and with the quintessential cynicism which would later define him, called it the first battle of the war, using quotation marks. A month later, however, Private Ambrose would find himself in real danger. 
At the Battle of Rich Mountain, his comrade Dyson Bothroyd found himself gravely wounded a mere 15 paces from the enemy's breastworks. Under fire, Ambrose miraculously managed to spring the wounded soldier from under the Confederate noses and back to their own lines. Though it was a heroic feat, it was sadly in vain, as Private Boothroy soon succumbed to his wounds. Though he barely touched on the particular subject of his fallen comrade, Ambrose's literary works, which he had begun to write at this point, would certainly center around the theme of heroics done in vain. And one could suspect that the event had more effect on him than he cared to admit. returned to Indianapolis in July, Ambrose re-enlisted as it reorganized for its new three-year service. He was promoted to sergeant and followed the war drums further south towards Tennessee. Here he would find death and misery on a scale which his previous engagements had not offered. At Shiloh in April of 1862, Confederate forces attacked Union forces awaiting reinforcements. It was the bloodiest battle in the conflict up to that point, and the northerners were cut off from support by a river. A couple of gunboats held the rebels at bay, while two ferries slowly supplied the weary soldiers to the fight. The march which Ambrose and his reinforcing comrades had undertaken was a forced one, and they had left one-third of their ranks laying by the wayside from exhaustion and other ailments. To die or recover, according to chance and willpower. The terrain through which they had marched consisted of alligator-filled swamps and thick brambles. At the end of this jungle march, they were ferried across in the dark, watching the raging battle on the other side. That losses were high on that side of the river became evident for young Sergeant Ambrose upon disembarking. He wrote, Hidden in hollows and behind clumps of rank brambles were large tents dimly lighted with candles, but looking comfortable. The kind of comfort they supplied was indicated by pairs of men entering and reappearing, bearing litters, by low moans from within and by long rows of dead with covered faces outside. These tents were constantly receiving the wounded, yet were never full. They were continually ejecting the dead, yet were never empty. It was as if the helpless had been carried in and murdered, that they might not hamper those whose business it was to fall tomorrow. It wouldn't be long before Ambrose would see the killing furnace up front. His regiment was sent forward and soon became pinned down at the side of a field. The rebel gunfire flew thick overhead as he and his comrades pressed themselves hard against the ground protected only by brambles and luck. In this manner, they spent a long period, which surely aged them tenfold to the time actually passed. Eventually, though, they were relieved, and the young private, ever curious, snuck away down a ravine nearby to investigate for himself a horrendous story which had begun to spread among the ranks. <laughs> Deciduous forests, that is, forests consisting of leaf trees, at least those some distance away from the equator, naturally release their foliage each autumn. The leaves eventually degrade and become part of the nutrient-rich soil. But before that happens, they usually spend some time on the forest floor, serving as a dry carpet, hindering stealthy travel to all who try, as well as serving as slow-burning tinder in the case of a spreading fire. In the ravine close to the field where Ambrose had found himself pinned down for so long, part of an Illinois infantry regiment had fought to the bitter end at the start of the battle a few days earlier. Refusing to surrender, they had all been cut down to a man, and our young protagonist found each branch and bramble in the ravine cut through by a bullet. But it was on the ground where the real horror met his gaze. A fire had spread across the dry leaves, smoldering each fallen soldier. 
Some had been long dead and lay still, but most had still clung to life when the flames caught them. The twisted and burned bodies and faces of his comrades stretched out across the entire ravine, and Ambrose, not yet turned twenty, had found enough terror for a lifetime of stories. Soon thereafter, the battle was over, resulting in a Union victory, though one which was comprised of more losses for the Yankees than the Confederates. on, and Ambrose, though cynical, anti-authoritarian, and unruly, found that the madness of war paradoxically suited him. Somewhere along the line, he was found to be useful for more than front-line gruntry, and was commissioned as an officer in November 1862. Three months later, he was promoted to the rank of first lieutenant, most likely due to having saved the life of the commanding officer. At that point, the only still living one was a major at the Battle of Mercerysboro in December of 62. His new rank came with a new assignment. For his sins, he was given the duty of a topographical engineer, work which he showed a natural aptitude for. His job was now to carefully plot maps of potential battlefields, encampments, and routes of travel, and one would think that it should have kept him out of harm's way. But trouble seemed to find Ambrose when he wasn't seeking it out himself. And when the Union Army of the Cumberland fell apart in September of 63, he found himself seeking cover behind a detachment of artillery as the sky filled with lead once again. Behind a firing battery, he found his brother Albert, an officer in the 18th Ohio Artillery. As the battle raged around him, the two siblings caught up in between shouting commands and cursing their luck. On leave from the army that winter, Ambrose got engaged to a childhood sweetheart and then returned to active duty. In May of 64, Union forces attacked the rebels at Pickett's Mill with the apparent purpose of merely testing the Confederates' entrenched firepower. Ambrose became witness to the suicidal charge which cut down 1,400 men in 30 minutes and was shocked and disgusted to his core. The realities of war were beginning to become too much for him. He wrote an account of the sordid affair called The Crime at Pickett's Mill and the cynicism which the 21-year-old was already blessed with started to turn into bitterness. A month later, at Kennesaw Mountain in Georgia, the Union General William T. Sherman attacked the Confederate Army of Tennessee on his way to Atlanta. The Union forces lost the battle, but still pressed on towards the powerhouse of the Confederacy. Lieutenant Ambrose, however, caught a bullet in the head from a sharpshooter and fell on the battlefield. <laughs> With the strangeness and luck so particular to the cynical fighter, Albert Pierce, wandering the battlefield in the aftermath, found his brother in the mud on that mountain, and to his surprise, shock, and subsequent joy found the wiry body still breathing. Though serious, the gunshot wound to the head did not prove fatal, and Ambrose was sent back from the lines to recover. A full three months of furlough went by, and with it the battles of 1864 summer, including the fall of Atlanta to Union forces. Once he had healed, Ambrose found that he had been cursed with a new unfortunate habit. When excitement, fatigue or exposure proved to be in abundance, Ambrose would now suffer fits of fainting, a most undesirable trait for an officer at war. And to make matters worse, his fiancée had found another man. 
depressed and alone, he found no other path to take when looking around, but back the way he had come, towards the sound of Confederate guns. Like many a man before him, Ambrose sought battle to mend the broken heart, or to end the beating of it in the process, whichever came first. And like many an army in the middle of a prolonged war, the Union one wasn't too particular about screening candidates. Lieutenant Beers was therefore reinstated and returned to active duty in September of 1864. For a while, the campaign proved uneventful for the sullen officer, until it didn't. In October, the two fighting forces finally confronted each other again after a seemingly endless series of marches and countermarches after the fall of Atlanta. The scene for this long-sought showdown was near Galesville, Alabama, roughly 80 kilometers further northwest. But before the great hullabaloo took off, Ambrose, his comrades, and their enemies were to take a few days of rest. Or in the words of Beers himself, at least most of the infantry and artillery did. What the cavalry was doing, nobody but itself ever knew or greatly cared. On a beautiful Sunday morning in this lull, Ambrose and an aide-de-camp named Cobb set off on a ride towards the nearby river, looking for God knows what. Eventually, the two lieutenants reached the waterway, and there they found three Union soldiers hidden in the bushes, waiting for unsuspecting rebels to pop their heads out into the open on the other side of the river. A boat had also had the misfortune to be placed nearby, and the two officers surveyed the enemy ground in front of them. On the rebel side, cornfields stretched along the bank as well as inland for about a mile, until a thin forest took hold of the country. There were also signs that plantations lay further beyond, though no houses or human activity could be spotted. Where the enemy was positioned, none among the ranks present had any idea. To the three soldiers, the appearance of two officers without much to do should have been an alarm bell, as any experienced soldier knows. They say that adventure is a series of bad decisions. And the first such one which the officers took was to row across the water in an attempt to scout for the elusive rebels' positions. This ad hoc reconnaissance party consisted of the three soldiers armed with a rifle each and the two officers who would lead the way with the service revolvers. Fortune held for the traverse across to the other side and the group quickly secured and hid the boat below the bank. Carefully, they snuck through the corn and made for the woods. Upon reaching it, they found a road. Their attentive eyes noticed the absence of wheel tracks upon it, which would have signaled heavier troop movements. But there were hoof prints scattered along it, and shortly at this point, Ambrose began to contemplate the importance of at least the enemy's cavalry activity. Pressing on, the men soon discovered an overgrown plantation. Though it was neglected due to the war, its inhabitants were still present. As the soldiers watched the people going about their business, two mounted men, clad in grey, appeared over the crest of the road further beyond. And then came the sound of more cavalry behind them. <laughs> Looking back at the crest, Ambrose saw that the two Confederates had multiplied over yonder as well. <laughs> Trouble had been found. The 
the Union soldiers initiated a wild and uncoordinated escape, and Lieutenant Cobb was shortly separated from the rest as he took a dive into the woods. Ambrose and the three soldiers continued over a fence, thinking it would slow down the mounted men, and took their aim from a nearby swamp. Here, Ambrose decided to hide himself, while the three soldiers pressed on. As he lay there panting, sporadic gunshots echoed through the scenic countryside, interspersed with coarse shouts and calls for bloodhounds. Finding curiosity too strong of a master, Ambrose crawled forward through the swamp till he reached the edge of the plantation field again. A group of Confederate cavalrymen stood some ways away, and to his horror he saw a woman belonging to the plantation house running towards them. It seemed that his movements had been noticed. Still on his belly, he rapidly made his way back to the road where they had been discovered and burrowed his way into some brambles. Here he spent the remainder of the day, whilst the enemy passed close by, searching for him, though not for the three soldiers he had commanded. From the conversations he overheard in his hideout, it became clear that they had all been caught soon after they had continued through the swamp. What had become of his fellow officer, Lieutenant Cobb, he knew not. After nightfall, Ambrose made his way through the stalks of corn and down to the river, where he found the landing craft gone. Though it was Alabama, it was still October, and the river was too cold and swift at that to be crossed without some sort of vessel. So he carried on along the bank, searching for a replacement. Soon he left the cornfields behind and entered thick woods. It was a moonless night, and if you've ever had the displeasure of making your way through dense foliage in such circumstances, you know how unnerving it can be. In such a case, fray the nerves further by adding an unknown amount of armed hunting parties on all sides of you. Our weary adventurer soon stumbled into an opening and stopped dead in his tracks at the sight of a dying campfire at his feet. With the sound of his own heartbeat pounding in his ears, Ambrose looked around the glowing embers and found the shapes of men all around him. Graced by his customary luck, however, the resting fiends turned out to have one and all fallen asleep, including the sentry of the camp. A shocked Ambrose retraced his steps and circled around, with the objective of reaching the river beyond the range of the rebels' positions. At this, he did not succeed. Instead, he ran into a sentry, and this one was not sleeping. <laughs> Lieutenant Beers made a mad dash back into the corn again, knowing that the enemy was now freshly aware that he was still trapped on their side of the river. He went to ground again and waited till morning to get his bearings. Finding that there was a narrow island not far from the bank, he waded through the cold waters and surveyed the friendlier side of the water, still far away. Desperate now, he made the choice to swim and began taking off his clothes. Once stripped, the sunlight mysteriously began to disappear and Ambrose's world turned dark. His old wound had proved not up to the task, and the intrepid poet had fainted before reaching the water. Realizing that a frigid swim would be too much for his condition, he began the assembly of a raft. For the remainder of the day, he toiled on the narrow island, using natural materials and the remnants of human structures, until finally he had managed to create a seaworthy vessel. 
Now only in need of a paddle, Ambrose went in search of this last missing piece. But Lady Fortune was having none of it. A Confederate home guard had heard noises on the island and had made his way across, stalking the snapping sounds until he had come across the Union officer. The game was up. But he was not to be shot on sight. His elder captain even overlooked a desperate attempt on his life from Ambrose. Forgiving this ungentlemanly lapse, he made Ambrose promise to not repeat it whilst in his custody. Young Ambrose agreed and was brought across the narrow channel and through the corn to dinner at his captor's house. At supper that evening, the whole neighborhood attended the feast at which the Union officer found himself as an involuntary guest. Staring and measuring eyes pierced his every movement as he learned from the young woman who had run over to the cavalryman whilst he was hiding out in the swamp that she had in fact not known his position. She had merely been inquiring about the state of her father, having been worried for his safety. Had she not, though, he would have probably been caught earlier, as the Confederates combed the swamp with great care. Slightly infatuated with this fair young woman, to whom it was unclear if he owed his life, not knowing how events had played out differently had he not spotted her the day before, Ambrose drifted off to sleep at the table and was carried off to bed. The next morning, Ambrose was handed over to a regular Confederate unit and marched off towards the rear of the lines. With him was another Union prisoner, but Ambrose did not find his new comrade particularly charming, rather a source of annoyance and danger. His rebel escorts too seemed to agree, and would on several occasions stow the young officer, but not the other captive, in the cornstalks when potential guerrilla units approached. This territory was the haunting ground of a certain Gatewood, a commander of an irregular rebel unit which didn't hesitate to hang foes, and sometimes friends, on sight. Ambrose's escorts informed him that it was most certainly into one of his camps that he had stumbled two nights before, and were amazed at his luck. Pierce's records mentions this commander's name as Jeff Gatewood, but it is possible that his escorts were referring to John Gatewood, a notorious Confederate brigand who apparently held a particularly burning hatred for Unionists since the rape and murder of his sister by Northern soldiers at the beginning of the war, and who operated close by in Northern Georgia. Regardless of which given name this ominous fiend held, the day passed in apprehension for the captives, though Ambrose stated that when he did meet Confederate cavalrymen along the way, he found his sworn enemies to be mostly civil and respectful. This famous southern charm continued into the night, as they were quartered indoors at the cabin of a farmer couple. After supper, the Confederate escorts and the two prisoners gathered round the fireplace, whilst the husband and wife of the household went to sleep. Beers and his comrades stretched out on the floor, joined by one of their guards. The remaining rebel sat himself down in the corner and proceeded to take first watch. Soon, Pierce's companion and the Confederate soldier were sleeping soundly. Ambrose, who had remained fully clad, pretended to saw some logs himself and watched through thinly veiled eyelids as the watchman started to fight off the call of sleep. This gentleman soon started to kid himself by sitting down on the floor, pistol in lap, and predictably earned himself a theoretical death sentence by falling asleep on watch. Ambrose bided his time. For half an hour, he faked some soft snores and kept an eye on his surroundings. Then, softly as a hungry cat, he rose and tiptoed over to the front door. One last look, and then he slowly twisted the lock. This traitorous sound woke up the lady of the house, and she sprung upright in bed. The game was back on. Ambrose threw himself out the door and started a mad dash through the dark. Behind him, hounds followed. 
but as he looked back over his shoulder and saw the house wake up, he heard the husband call the dogs back. The man had clearly not grasped the situation. Ambrose blessed his luck and pressed further into the Dixie greenery. Navigating by the North Star, he now avoided all fields and kept a difficult terrain, most likely to avoid ground which could be traversed by the numerous cavalrymen in that particular theatre. There still wasn't much moonlight, and the going was rough. By Ambrose's account, he left a large amount of his clothing and skin along his blindly blazed trail. Having survived uncaught until dawn, the ragged officer feasted on foraged raw sweet potatoes and persimmons. With renewed energy, he continued on, avoiding anything man-made, and reached the river before sundown. Here he rested for half an hour, said a quick prayer, and threw caution on any plans to build a raft to hell. Lieutenant Beers flung himself into the frigid water. Sink or swim. assortment of staff officers gathered around the campfire of Beers's colonel that evening, including Lieutenant Cobb, who had managed to escape across the river after the unfortunate scouting party four days earlier. As the jokes and liquor flowed, a dark shape appeared out of the shadows and fell down into the fire. Reacting with the decisiveness expected of campaigning officers, they quickly dragged the foul-smelling creature out of the burning embers. Whatever it was, they expected it to be dead. Lieutenant Ambrose Beers, however, was very much still alive. The war raged on for a few months more, but things began to wind down as the Union forces claimed victory after victory. Confederate President Jefferson Davis was captured on May 10, 1865, and Cherokee leader Stan Waite, the last Confederate general, surrendered his forces a month and a half later. For Ambrose, the war was almost over by that time. He was still suffering from his wound and actually resigned from the army in January 65. But bureaucracy functions in much the same manner as which the word is now synonymous and certainly did in those days as well. Therefore, he rejoined General Sherman and the march to the Carolinas until April, when the paperwork finally came through. Not a lover of government work, authority, or one should suspect the battlefields of the South, where fighting was still going on at this point, mind you, Ambrose made a rather peculiar choice for his next profession, that of a treasury agent in Alabama the same state where he had been captured six months earlier. Now I'll let you ponder on the significance of that choice a little. By now, you should have reached the conclusion that said choice offered one thing in abundance, especially to a former Union officer. Danger. almost, at least, over, the United States government decided that its taxation, that pillar on which all states stand, had to resume in the rebellious states. As an agency aide to a Treasury special agent, Ambrose's new job included the thankless tasks of seizing plantations and cotton bales. The owners of most plantations were either dead, missing, or hiding but the local inhabitants did not look too kindly upon said interference regardless. And when it came to the cotton which the South produced, it had had a difficult time getting through the Union blockade during the war. That very same Union now decided that it belonged to them. 
to the Southerners who had been paid for it in now useless Confederate money, that deal seemed less than ideal. Ambrose, therefore, had to not only seize those bales, but also find them, and they were usually hidden in swamps and guarded by watchful eyes and armed hands. Needless to say, treasury agents and their aides were dropping dead like flies, or disappearing into thin air. By Ambrose's own admittance, there was money to be had, though, as the cotton was expensive and could, with the right connections, be mixed in with the kind not set for confiscation. Add to that the fact that the agents had the right to keep one-fourth of all seized cotton for themselves, and the martial law in place, and you'll likely picture the volatile black market, which was Selma, Alabama, at the end of the U.S. Civil War. Ambrose, though, kept his head cool and his charm warm. On several occasions he was presented with offerings of the shady kind, but navigated them in a gentlemanly manner without upsetting his almost former enemies. His dealings with rebels usually turned out to be amicable, mirroring his previous experiences in Alabama. On a steamboat laden with 600 bales of confiscated cotton, Ambrose and his boss traveled down the Tombigbee River. A detachment of US soldiers came aboard as protection for this precious cargo, but it wouldn't be long until they steamed right in to an ambush. As the bullets flew over and into the boat, Ambrose realized to his shock that the soldiers on board did not have any cartridges. To make matters worse, the captain ran for cover. The steamboat was now in the merciless power of the former Confederate bandits, save Ambrose and his gun. Though between his own gunshots, he noticed another series of shots coming from their own side, and so bandits go down after his own revolver had been emptied. Strange though it was, they were still severely outgunned. Luckily, the terrain came to the rescue, as they aimlessly navigated past a bayou which was impassable to their attackers. Ambrose cocked his empty gun at the head of the steamboat captain, and soon they were underway again, though still for a while at the mercy of bouts of long-range fire. When all was clear, Ambrose noticed the old gentleman which they had taken aboard as a passenger at one of the landings. He was still clad in a Confederate uniform, and Ambrose strongly suspected, paradoxically, that though he probably sympathized with the attackers, he had been the one firing the revolver with deadly accuracy at his former comrades. This hypothesis was presented to the former soldier by the former officer, to which the man replied that, as he didn't have a dime on him, but was still taken on as a passenger, the only one in fact, by the two tax officials, he figured he might as well pay his passage and earn his keep. Eventually, Ambrose also made the acquaintance of two former Confederate officers, brothers, as it were. Those gentlemen proved to be from a local prominent family and were known to be quick on the trigger finger. So their power in that lawless land was as good a security as a Union official could ask. Their strange friendship grew with time and most likely saved Ambrose's already perforated skin in the end. Not satisfied with the dangers the South now offered, Ambrose received an offer from his former commander to travel west. After having won not only a military victory over the southern secessionist states, but also easily argued a moral one over the institution of slavery, the United States turned its head from south to west and squandered any karma won by deciding to rise to new levels of wankery against the Native Americans there. The western frontier was finally to be tamed, and there was work to be done. General Hazen had been tasked with launching a small expedition to inspect military outposts across the Great Plains in 1866. This team consisting of Hazen himself, a cook, a teamster, and Ambrose as topographical surveyor, 
would travel through Nebraska, the Dakotas, Montana, Utah, Nevada, and then onwards towards California. They were to do it by horse, cart, and foot. It was a military route, and one which would pass through territory not under any real government control. In places, they were escorted by cavalry, but mostly they were on their own. But the last great fight for control over the territory now known as the United States had not quite begun just yet. The expedition passed through Fort Phil Kearney in present-day Wyoming, which was tasked with protecting travelers on the Bozeman Trail. No attack from hostile tribes occurred. This was most likely due to the fact that they were gathering in large numbers. In what would become known as the Fetterman Massacre, U.S. soldiers based at the fort were drawn into an ambush shortly after Ambrose left. The Native American warriors, including the famous Crazy Horse himself, slaughtered 81 men and the commanding officer, the greatest U.S. loss on the Great Plains up to that point. The tiny expedition traveled to what is now Yellowstone National Park, and much like Lewis and Clark 60 years earlier, gawked in amazement at the wildlife they found along the way. In Nevada, they camped in the same place as the ill-fabled Donner Party. Though the newly reinstated Lieutenant Pierce most likely tried to some degree to find trouble wherever he could along the way, the expedition made it in one piece to San Francisco, despite the poor odds. Here, he resigned from the army for good. Ambrose would, from this point, mostly dabble in adventure. He would risk his life as a manager for a mining company in the famous town of Deadwood and go up against railroad robber barons as a journalist, successfully at that. But mostly, he would write and write and write, becoming a journalist and a short story writer of the highest caliber. True to the concept of write what you know, his themes would be horror and the Civil War, to a large degree. He would marry in 1871 and father three children. On the West Coast, Ambrose would reign supreme as a literary critic and rub elbows with presidents and political and financial elite. And though he would reach this fame in his time and become arguably the best in his line of work, peace, unlike trouble, was not yet ready to find him. Sadly, both his sons would die young, and he would find letters to another man by his wife which were less than ideal from the perspective of a husband. To Ambrose, this type of sorrow was not new. He had known pain and heartbreak as a young man, and he well remembered the remedy he had used then. Divorced and depressed, a 71-year-old Ambrose went towards the sound of gunfire once more. Across the border from the United States, Mexico had its own series of conflicts which would reshape her into what she is today. From 1910 to 1920, these collective fights, known as the Mexican Revolution, raged in much the same manner as for her northern cousin half a century earlier. To Ambrose, it seemed familiar. In the autumn of 1913, he traveled east after finishing his collected works. His business was to tour old battlefields. And there, he spent his time remembering those countless friends and comrades who had fallen, and realized how when seeking the advice of most of his memories, he was now the sole survivor of them. He then headed west to Texas, and then south through El Paso, crossing into Mexico in November. Ostensibly, he was to be a reporter attached to the Mexican Revolutionary General Pancho Villa and his army. But from a letter sent to his only surviving child, his daughter Helen, 
a mere month later, it was clear that old Ambrose was partaking in hostilities himself. He had been given a sombrero for shooting an enemy combatant with a rifle at long range, and he was leaving the next day to take part in the Battle of Ojinaga. To his cousin Laura, he wrote at around the same time, If you hear of my being stood up against the Mexican stone wall and shot to rags, please know that I think that a pretty good way to depart is life. It beats old age, disease, or falling down the cellar stairs. To be a gringo in Mexico, ah, that is euthanasia. The prolific writer's words would about after that. Ambrose Gwyneth Pierce disappeared without a trace after the Battle of Ojinaga. And though that strange and adventurous end has been fictionalized in the famous novel The Old Gringo by Carlos Fuentes, his final fate still remains unknown to this day. Regardless if Ambrose ever managed to mend his broken heart after that battle, or if it stopped beating at it, I invite you to join me in a toast to his life, an adventurous one, and certainly one which was stranger than fiction. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of this story. My name is Cosimo Greco. I'm a former soldier, investigator, security consultant, repossession expert, and intelligence analyst. And I live for adventures and strange experiences. Throughout my chaotic life, I have gathered a vast array of useless but fascinating information. And from now on, about once a month or so, I will come in from that bush, sit down by the fire, uncork some expensive spirits, and share an adventure tale stranger than fiction with you. If you want to get a heads up for specific release dates, feel free to follow Staff Podcasts, STAF Podcast, or that Cosmo Greco on Instagram. And until next time, take care and stay strange.